And so I am thankful to be here this morning um, and spend time in God's Word with you. Um, and if you have your Bibles, um, you can open it or tap it or however you get access to it, um, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear the word of the Lord. We're going to read the whole of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all of God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So when we meet someone new, it's common to ask them questions, right? We ask questions like, where are you from? What do you do for a living? What is your family like? And there's, I mean, there's any number of questions you can ask people, but when you really think about it, you can narrow it down to two broad categories of questions. Questions about roles and questions about attributes. So questions about roles and attributes. Role questions revol revolve around what we do or what we're known for. It's a, an external way of looking at a person, right? So people who ask me questions about my role will get questions like, I'm Meredith's husband. I'm Eden, Lily, and Nora's dad. I'm one of the directors at New Life Ranch. 
I serve with the youth at Three Rivers Presbyterian Church. Role questions ask what a person does. Attribute questions, on the other hand, ask what a person is like. It's more of an internal focus. You find something out about the character of that person by asking these questions of attributes. So when you ask me attribute questions, there's any number of ways that one could use to describe me, both good and bad. And what we see in this first chapter of Hebrews is a, is a glimpse, a picture of who Jesus is, a sort of get to know you of Jesus. Because the whole book of Hebrews focuses on Christ. And so in this first chapter, right off the bat, the author introduces us to who is this Jesus character, this person of Christ that we see throughout the whole book that we hear about in the gospel. So some background for the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote the book. Some think maybe Paul, but scholars, when you look at the Greek and, and whatnot, it's it's like the difference between like a high school and a master's level. Paul writes very much at like a high school. It's an everyman kind of Greek, the common language. Hebrews is very scholarly in its, in its words and how it structures sentences. So it's a very different style of writing. So it's probably not Paul. Some people think, well, maybe it was Barnabas. Maybe it was Timothy. Most, most commentators, most scholars, and usually... Um, it's best um, to take the approach that just says we simply don't know who wrote the book. And that's okay because what we do know is that they care deeply about the audience. And they, they, they know who Christ is. They're, they're aware of who Christ is. And it's, it's truth that what he's saying, what the author is saying. They know their audience well. The book was written not long after Christ walked on the earth. Um, it was written probably before A.D. 70. So within like 50 years of when Jesus walked on the earth. Because it, it presents temple worship as something that is happening currently. Temple worship is a current event in the book of Hebrews. In A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. So temple worship stopped happening after A.D. 70. And with such a significant event in the history of Israel, uh, an author writing to a Jewish audience surely would have mentioned that if that had happened already. So this book was first written not long after Jesus walked the earth. And most scholars uh, believe that it's, it's written to second generation Christians. So it's the Christians who, who didn't, weren't born yet when Jesus walked the earth. So the first generation Christians are like the disciples and the immediate people that the disciples um, shared the gospel with. And it's like the next set of people when you go down the line in church history that the audience of the book of Hebrews is. <clears throat> and this group was experiencing a tremendous amount of persecution. And because of that, they were being tempted to walk away from Jesus. And this letter, it calls readers throughout the book to look to Christ as greater than all of those things 
that um, they're experiencing. It's greater than the persecution. He's greater than the temptation to walk away. Christ is preeminent. Christ is, is better than all of that. In fact, right from the get-go, the author, he presents these three roles. He presents three roles of Christ that he's the greatest version of, that he's the true and better version of. And each of these three roles, this role of prophet, priest, and king that the author presents is, is significant to a Jewish audience. I mean, what are the three roles throughout the entire Old Testament that we see over and over and over again? Prophet, priest, and king. Those are significant roles. And the author, in answering who is Jesus from the external, from those role questions, he says, he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And then after presenting those three roles, he moves on to three attributes. What is this, this prophet, priest, and king? What is he like? And so he presents three glimpses of who Jesus is. And the author starts with this amazing revelation that God speaks to his people. He writes that in long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers and the prophets. He spoke to his people. He isn't some far off, distant God that creates the universe, sets it in motion, and just walks away. He speaks, he's active, there's a relationship with his creation. He interacts with his people, and he used people over the course of history in the role of prophet as his mouthpiece to speak and interact with his people. And he still has that relationship today. It, it, the author says, but in these last days, in the current days, in the days happening now, God speaks to us through his son. And what we'll see is he's the, he's the final, the perfect prophet. God has given his word to his people. The author presents Jesus as that final word. Right? In the Old Testament, one commentator writes that it's, it's this fragmented way. It's, here's a little bit here from this person. Here's some here from this prophet. Here's from, from this priest. Here's some from this king. There's lots of different, you know, human voices going on. One God's sharing to all of them. But now... God has given his son as that final word, that final voice. Prophets were over hundreds of years would eventually speak the words that God would reveal to his people. But now God has given his final word, his son to be the final spokesman to all of God's people. So Jesus is the final definitive word of God. Jesus illustrates what this looks like in his own life on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, right? He says in the book of Matthew, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Jesus, he takes these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain and and appears in all his glory. And Moses and Elijah were there. And those two figures, Moses and Elijah, were like the definitive, the pinnacle figures of God's spokesmen. They were like the most important prophets that, you know, you go up to an Israelite during the time. Who's the most important prophet? Elijah, Moses. Like, that's the answer. Those are the most important guys, the these definitive figures of the spiritual lives of the people. And God speaks and he says, this is Jesus. He's the son. He's the one who pleases me. Listen to him. And then it's Jesus alone. So God is saying, he's the final word. Not these other two really great guys that you love and follow, but Jesus. A.W. Pink comments that the glory associated with Moses and Elijah was so eclipsed by the infinitely greater glory connected with Christ that they faded from view. Christ is so much better than anything else, even good things. And that's what the author of Hebrews is getting, that God spoke in many ways in the olden days, but now he speaks through his son, the final word, the true and better word. Jesus is supremely better than all the other religious spiritual staples that we may hold on to. He's above all. He is the final word of God, the true and better way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as the final word of God, Jesus is now presented as the true and better prophet, priest, and king. And as we work through the text, we're going to follow the order that it's presented here. So it feels a little bit wonky at times because we want to say prophet, priest, and king, but the author of Hebrews starts with the role of king. Verse 2 says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So when I was growing up, and honestly still today, I enjoyed building things out of Legos. Anyone else with me? Getting some head nods, right? I enjoyed building things out of Legos, right? I had all of the roads. I had it all organized. I had like an eight foot table in my basement. Just that was like my station, right? And I had the roads and I would build houses and build the cars and put the trees and build these towns and these, these scenes and sets, whatever you want to call them. And In a way, I'm in charge, right? That's my kingdom, if you will, right? I can choose to build something new or take something down, or I want that car to also fly. I can make that happen because I'm in charge. I'm the king of that little domain of the Lego world that I created. In a similar fashion, because Jesus, as our text says, he's the instrument that God used in which creation happened, and it's all upheld through him, he's the ruler. He is in charge on a way bigger scale than I ever will be with Legos. He is the heir over all things, right? Even that word of heir 
like, it's not just like, oh, there's like, you know, we use the word beneficiary today for like us non-royal people, <laughs> right? To say like, oh, you get my stuff when I die. But that word heir always brings with it this idea of royalty. He's the heir to the throne. He's the son of the king, right? Jesus the heir, he's the rightful son who is to rule the earth. So he has the right because it was through Jesus that the Father created the world. Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the king, the divine king. One commentator, Richard Phillips, writes, those Jewish Christians who first received this letter were being tempted to renounce Christianity. But Jesus fulfills and gathers to himself all that the office of king ever meant in Israel. He's the true king, the Lord of all, and the faithful of Israel are those who worship and serve him. We need to embrace the same truth Jesus is king over the church and over the Christian people, no less than when the Israelites of David's day looked to his authority and obeyed his commands. But how seldom do people think of Jesus this way? When he walked upon his earth and his humanity, Jesus did not look like a king. He did not ride a great stallion. His coming was not heralded by trumpets. He did not hold court in a palace of gold. This is why people scoffed at his kingship. Pontius Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? It was not so much a question as a taunt. So I want to encourage us all to look to Jesus as our king and our ruler. <clears throat> as our king, it puts us in a relationship with Jesus that moves us into one of reverence and awe. He's our, he is our ruler. He, he may ask us to do things that we don't want to do. Other times, he'll ask us to live in relative comfort. But he's our king, and as our king, we look to him as our ruler. Michael Kruger, a pastor and professor, asked this question, how would our lives look different if we thought about Jesus not just as our savior from sin, but also the sovereign king over everything. How would our lives look different if we thought about Jesus not as our Savior from sin, but also the sovereign King over everything? And Kruger's answer is fantastic. He writes, we would be more prayerful. We would be less anxious because we entrust all our cares to Christ. Of course, being fallen people, we would still worry but this view of Jesus is the thing that will fight that too. And we'd be less despairing about the advance of the gospel because we would remember that the great God who upholds the whole universe is the one leading his army forward. Jesus is not going to lose. The world is his inheritance and he will prevail in the end, however dark things seem. Let Jesus be your king. It will change your life. Jesus 
is our king. He is the divine king. He's also our prophet. First part of verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament was to reveal God to the people. Right? God would speak to an individual. He would speak to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, anyone else. And they would convey the message of God to the people. And in our text, we learn that Jesus is the perfect prophet. In fact, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. The idea there of like when you, when you press something, you take a piece of clay and you, you press a coin into it and it's the exact imprint of that coin. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. In other words, if we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And Jesus affirms this when he says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. While on earth, Jesus perfectly revealed the Father to his people. So that means when we, when we read the words of Jesus in the gospel, we know that those words are God's will for our lives. So when Jesus broadens our understanding of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and says, it's not enough that you just don't go around murdering people and killing people. It also has to do with your attitude towards people. That that is, is God's will for us. We understand more fully what God has said because of Christ. It's no wonder that, that John, in, in, in his opening of his gospel, uses the word logos to describe Jesus right from the beginning. He's the word. He's the exact word of God. He's the living word of God. So everything that he said, everything he did, reveals to us what God has for us. Jesus, he gives commands. He gives warnings. He shows us the only way to be saved. He's the prophet. He's the one who reveals God to us. Over and over in the Old Testament, God's people needed someone outside of themselves to reveal God's truth to them. And Jesus does, does just that. So we can look to Jesus and trust that he shows us God's will for us and reveals to us the truth of who God is. So we need to listen to him. He's the divine king. He's the perfect prophet. He's also the final priest. End of uh, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. That we're incapable of life apart from God. It's like, um, I think about in The Princess Bride, um, when Wesley is presumed to be dead. If you've not seen the movie, um, which I hope most of you have, it's a really hard to describe it because it's such an odd storyline. 
But when you boil it down, it's ultimately about a man, Wesley, whose true love is about to get married to someone else. And he's trying to stop that bad marriage from happening. Now along the way, there's sword fights, there's giants, there's battle of wits, shrieking eels, and rodents of unusual size. So it's much more than just this basic plotline of trying to stop a bad marriage. And there's a scene in the movie when two characters, Inigo Montoya and Fezzik the Giant, they need a miracle. Wesley has died. The one trying to stop the wedding, the hero of the story, has died. In fact, he was killed by the very man that he was trying to stop. So they bring him to a miracle worker named Miracle Max to see if he can do something. And after assessing the body, Miracle Max declares, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Paul in Ephesians 2 is not saying that we are mostly dead. He's saying that we are all dead. That there's nothing um, viable apart of us, apart from Christ. There's no life in us. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Two words that Paul uses to say like, there's no way around it. Any way you look at it, you're dead. But God makes you alive. We need someone outside of ourselves to save us. And Jesus, as our priest, does just that. The wages of sin is death. We needed someone to die in our place and make that sacrifice for our sins. Our text in Hebrew says he makes purification for our sins. And this office of priest is kind of this running theme throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. And priests in the Old Testament, they were the ones who would bring the sins of the people before God, and they would make the sacrifices that would would atone for those sins. And they would do this over and over and over again. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So they'd have these sacrifices, and this whole system was built up as a shadow of what was to come, an image, a looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So every year, the sacrifices would happen again and again, and the sins were not fully taken away. Ultimately, our sins are only taken away in Christ. He makes purification for our sins. And after making the sacrifice, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus sat down. He sat down. When a person is done, when you've had a hard day of work, what do you do? You sit down. It's done. I can rest now. There's no more work to be done. Jesus sits down. The sacrifice was a total purification of sin. 
He's the final priest, the one who offers and is the final sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the only way that sin can be forgiven. We can't do anything to be saved. We can't find forgiveness in anyone or anything else. Paul writes in Romans 10 that you call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved, not anything else. So if you looked to Jesus as your hope, your only hope in life and death, it's no wonder that the very catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism that we, we looked at um, as we confessed our faith together this morning starts with that question of what is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Our only comfort in life and death is Jesus. He's the final priest that makes the final sacrifice to totally and fully purify us and remove our sins. So look to him. In these three roles of king, of prophet, and of priest, we are being asked to follow Jesus as our ruler, um, as our king, to listen to Jesus as our prophet, and look to him as our priest for forgiveness. So this means that following Jesus consumes our whole lives. It's not just, uh, the gospel is not just a get out of hell free card. It involves all of us. And, he, and Jesus is, is presented in so much more than just, just this get out of hell free card um, in just the first three verses of this book. One, one commentator, Raymond Brown, writes that possibly our vision of Christ is limited. We are in danger of confining him to our restricted experience or limited knowledge. We need a vision of Christ with these immense cosmic dimensions, a Christ who transcends all our noblest thoughts about him and all our best experience of him. These first century readers would be less likely to turn from him in adversity if they had looked to him in adoration. The opening sentences of this letter are designed to bring them and us to our knees. Only then can we hope to stand firmly on our feet. This letter's lofty teaching about the person and work of Christ expounded with the aid of arresting titles of Jesus is a stark challenge to modern humanitarian Christologies, most of which tend to reduce Jesus to an inspired man with a unique sense of religious destiny or an, extent, an, ex, an outstanding example of benevolent concern and altruistic service or a fervent zealot with a passion for liberation usually interpreted in political terms. Whilst preserving the important truth of Christ's essential humanity, this letter presents its reader with a revelation of Jesus in his matchless deity. He is the enthroned Lord, worthy of all our honor and worship. Jesus is so much bigger and better and requires so much more of us than we can think. Too often we, we reduce Jesus to merely just one of these roles. 
But right off the bat, the author of Hebrews calls us to see a fuller picture of who Jesus is and recognize how we ought to respond to him. Jesus can't be simply just a small aspect of our lives, but he must be front and center as our king, as our prophet, and as our priest. One commentator writes uh, that virtually every single word in the book of Hebrews is pregnant with meaning. And even just in these first three verses, we see so much of who Jesus is and what he's done. But this chapter does not end with only these three roles. Right? Recall that when we get to know someone, we ask questions of role. What do you do? But we also ask, what are they like? What are their attributes? What are their characteristics? And the author of Hebrews answers these role uh, or these attribute questions by going through this exposition of looking and comparing Jesus with angels. He does this because in a lot of ways, angels back then and even still today are kind of a, are viewed as this significant spiritual creature, right? It's kind of an easy end to the spiritual world of angels because they're white and have wings and they're all friendly and stuff like that. And they get their wings when a bell rings, right? Like it's just this, this easy entrance into the spiritual realm. And so in a lot of ways, people are like, oh yeah, angels are these great, great beings. But the author says, yeah, you think angels are great. You should see Jesus. He's even greater than those angels. And, and he compares their names. Um, he, he says that Jesus has a better name. He is the son. The angels aren't the son. Jesus is. The angels aren't to be worshipped, but in fact, they worship the son. They worship Jesus. They're not sovereign, but he is. So the author is showing that Jesus ought to be the center, at the center of our spiritual understanding. And in this exposition of Jesus being superior to angels, we see three specific attributes of what Jesus is like. The first being eternal. Jesus is eternal. We'll move through these rather quickly. <clears throat> Verses, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Jesus is eternal. The world around us may be crumbling, but Jesus, as our prophet, priest, and king, will remain. He's eternal. So that means no matter the situations that we may face, both good and bad, Jesus is sovereign over all. We may recall um, a few months back in Romans 8, um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We can trust that God is in control and uses all things according to his purposes because he is outside of our understanding of time and he's eternal. Jesus is eternal. He's also immutable. That means he doesn't change. The end of verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. In his eternalness, Jesus doesn't change. Growing up every year for spring break, my family would drive from the suburbs of Chicago to Naples, Florida. Um, we would drive because my parents did not like flying. So it was always a long 
drive. <clears throat> and, and my parents, when we'd stop for meals, we'd stop at the same restaurant almost any time, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, Cracker Barrel. We'd go to Cracker Barrel almost every time. And every time I'd order just about the same thing. Mama's French toast breakfast. Sourdough French toast, bacon, eggs, fruit. It was so good. Like, best me, I'm, I mean, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, I'd get the same thing. Because it's Cracker Barrel and you can do that there. You can ask for that breakfast menu even if it's 9 o'clock at night. And it was the same thing. And every time I was like, this is amazing. A few weeks ago, while we were traveling for Christmas, Meredith, the girls, and I stopped at Cracker Barrel. I got Mama's French Toast breakfast. I was so excited to have this, this unchanging meal in my mind because it was always good. When it got to the table, the, the French Toast was smaller than I remember. It was not nearly as good. I, was, I, I, I looked at Meredith, I was like, I'm really disappointed right now. Half joking, I was like, I kind of feel like crying. Like this, is, this was like such this memory of this like unchanging, always good thing suddenly wasn't, it had changed. It was different in my mind. I was disappointed. I trusted that it would be the same as the last time that I had it, but it wasn't. But when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't change. He's not like that French toast breakfast at Cracker Barrel. He doesn't change. He's consistent. He's always good. And that gives us hope. Right? As Michael Kruger said in the quote from earlier, we would be less anxious because we would entrust all our cares to Christ. Because we know that he is immutable. He does not change. So we can rest in that. Lastly, the author of Hebrews says that Christ is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Being all-powerful means that Jesus has the power and authority to conquer all enemies. So just as we read in the Confession of Faith this morning, uh, or Confession of Sin, that we're surrounded by enemies, Jesus is powerful enough to conquer those enemies. Totally. In, in a way that he says he uses the enemies as a footstool, right? This is like the, the image of a king who conquered another country. He sits down and he props his feet up on like kind of morbid, but like the body of the slain king and ruler of the other kingdom. He says, I have conquered this enemy. He puts his feet up there. Jesus has conquered the power of sin and death over us. He has slain our enemies. We know that in Christ, victory happens. So even when we face trials and troubles today. So Jesus, he's our king. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's eternal, immutable, omnipotent. So I want to ask us, if all this is true, what difference does it make? What difference does it make if all this is true? The difference is that Jesus is so much more, so much better than anything else we might look to. So often we look 
to people or things to be the rulers of our lives. But Jesus is the better king, perfectly loving and powerful, never changing. Right? So often the things that we look to for significance or hope, they fade away. How many athletes do you know prided themselves in their athletic ability and it just took one broken leg to take it all away? They put their hope in something besides Christ, something that can change. We may not think it will change, but it will. But Jesus, as our king, does not change. He's the unchanging, all-powerful, eternal king that is sovereign over all of creation. So trust him. So often we look to unbiblical ways of thinking about the world. We let, we let secular worldly views influence our religious spiritual lives. We look to truth in so many places. But do we ultimately look to Christ as the source of real truth? Jesus says that he is the truth. He's the way. He's the life. Do we believe that? That he perfectly proclaims the truth of who God is and what he's done? So as our prophet, look to him. So often we try and, and, and rest our assurance of salvation in the things that we do. If we just go to church more, read our Bible more, if we just live a certain way, if we do this or that or the other thing, then God will accept me. There's no amount of things that we can say, do, or think that will save us. Jesus is our perfect priest, offering the only sacrifice that forgives our sins. So look, find hope in him alone. I want to end with a quote from um, Richard Phillips, one of the commentators. What is there you might need, but that the risen and reigning Lord and Savior is the answer? There is nothing you might face, nothing you might lack, nothing you might need in all your weakness and sin and human frailty that is not found abundantly in him who loves you and gave himself for you and now reigns forever as Savior and Lord, who remains the same and whose years shall have no end. All of our true needs are met in the immutable, omnipotent, eternal prophet, priest, and king. Trust him, look to him, find hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus. Help us now to look to him as our prophet, priest, and king. To obey him, to honor him, to follow him, to hear his word, and to trust in his sacrifice alone. Help us now, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.